0: that are starting up this this fall and the opportunity that we have to to pour into the up-and-coming generation God's Word. We we come this morning to, to God's Word finishing up those Books of wisdom and poetry, those, those books that kind of spanned all time, all generations, and really spoke to life as a whole, didn't they? And now we come to a series of writings called The Prophets. And when we come to the, this series, we, we kind of jump back into the timeline of those historical books along that narrative that, that we looked at earlier this year. But not only do we jump back into different places in the timeline of the, the history of the Old Testament, we also find ourselves looking ahead transported to things that will come it kind of gets exciting intriguing and we begin to look at this and we realize or I realized you will now that over one-fourth of our scriptures deal with the prophets the prophecies of of scripture and as we approach these 17 prophetic books They're divided into the five major prophets. That doesn't mean they're more important. It just means they're longer to read. And then into the 12 minor prophets. They're shorter. They're they're very succinct in, in their message. And when it comes to the prophets, I find that in the church, typically, this is the area of Scripture that evades most believers they're they're kind of well I know they're in there and I know they talk about things to come but really it's it's that area of scripture that we're not as familiar with and primarily due to neglect or laziness or just a lack of interest in this portion of scripture. One-fourth of the scripture, and we just kind of have a "Eh," mindset about the prophets. I hope that as we dig into these these books, these writings, you will come away with a different perspective of this portion of scripture that God has given us. As, As we look at prophets or the word prophet it simply comes from two greek words that literally mean to speak for a prophet spoke for god on his behalf he spoke the words of god he delivered god's message he delivered god's warnings he delivered god's words to the people You would think that somebody coming with such an important message, such important words, they would be heeded. But most often, they were not. They would be delivered in in written format, which is why we have the prophetic books. They would be written in or given in oral fashion, which we find a great deal with ones like the very first prophet, Samuel. We see different ones doing visual illustrations and demonstrating things by their life. Regardless, the message would go forth. And it was was twofold. It would have a foretelling of, of things to come. That was exciting, right? How many of you, if you hear that prophecy is going to be taught, things to come is going to be taught, you kind of get excited and intrigued a little bit. Two of you. All right. The rest of you are like, nope, that, that, no, don't really care to know what's coming tomorrow. Okay. Well, you know what? The, the original audience actually looked forward to those things. Some of you are like, oh, we were supposed to raise our hands. I, oh, missed that. The foretelling were, were things that intrigued. If someone can tell us the future, we want to hear that message. The problem was, is the foretelling. The original audience, there was a message delivered that they needed to hear. There was sin in their lives they needed to deal with. There were actions that needed to be taken. And often in the forth telling, the message was ignored. I am so glad we don't come to Scripture and do the very same thing. When God points out sin in in our hearts, our lives, our minds, we don't go uh, and just brush it aside, do we? Or do we? We're intrigued about things that make us smarter, we think. We're intrigued about things that now we know something maybe someone else doesn't. But to deal with the things of today, the things that are in our hearts and our lives, well, we really don't want to do that because that's uncomfortable. And it was that way for the original audience as well. The message often of a prophet was judgment. There was condemnation due to sin or disobedience in the life of the people. And we find ourselves still struggling with sin all these many years later, don't we? We still find ourselves aware of the message of God, yet brushing it aside. We don't like the message of judgment, do we? But it was a twofold message because there would also be consolation. There would be a hope that would be extended to the the hearers if there was an action taken. There was hope. There was grace and mercy. And often we come to the scriptures and we say, oh, the God of the Old Testament. Oh, he was a God of thunder. I mean, he would deliver judgment and condemnation to the people, right? Well, yeah. Yeah. But my goodness, as you read these books, they ooze with God's grace and His mercy. And we look at that and oh my goodness, we see His marvelous grace. If we didn't, we would not see a people. Both of these messages, both condemnation and consolation, are found also in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah. Isaiah would write of these two things as well. But I I need for you to understand Judah's condition. The southern tribe. Remember the two tribes, the two kingdoms were, not the southern tribe, the southern kingdom. The two kingdoms were split after Solomon. And we have the uh, the kingdom of Judah. There is a condition that is in the hearts of the people. They look very religious. I will tell you right now, God is not impressed with looks. You can come to church on a Sunday. You can dress the part. You can look the part. You can even talk the part. That does not impress God. And we will see this in in Judah's condition. Assyria has come in to the northern kingdom. Assyria has come in and taken Israel away right about the time when Isaiah begins his ministry. And we see them being led away into captivity. That should have been a message of warning to Judah, but it was not. They didn't heed the message well. Have we ever seen an example in someone else's life where we should have seen the warning signs in our own? I'm guilty. And we think, that won't happen to me. Because somehow we think in our minds that we impress God more than that person did. One thing we see in these prophetic books is sin is sin and God deals with sin. Regardless of who you are. He has to, because it opposes his very character, his very being. And Isaiah steps into ministry as Judah is dealing with this internal sin that is now beginning to show itself even on the outside. Oh, they'd act a certain way when they went to the temple, if they even went at all. Isaiah had a very difficult ministry. Tradition tells us that he was sawn in two at the end of his ministry for his stand for the holiness of God and the consequences of sin. But when you look at Israel and Judah, you see a people who give lip service but don't know the Lord. Turn with me to this this wonderful book, Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2 says, begins this way. Listen. Your parents ever tell you that? Listen to me. Pay attention. Have you ever said that to your kids? Listen. Listen. You want them to hear not only the words, but what you are trying to convey to them. It begins, listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Okay, if God's going to speak, you and I need to listen. Sons, I have reared And brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. What a tragedy. God is saying, Listen, even animals east of the field understand this but you you've missed it verses 9 and 10 compare them with Sodom and Gomorrah you remember those two towns right we we look amongst the people and we see that there is a moral dis- disease among them and a decline See if you can draw any comparisons amongst the society that we live in today. The world that you and I work and live and play in. The moral compass is off. There is a neglect for God's word and having a place of authority in their lives. Man's opinion is far more valued than what God says. They hold on to rituals, the facades of religiosity, rather on holding on and clinging to the very God who wants a relationship with them. Their will, their desires have become their God. They actually have the audacity to look to their armies, to their rulers, to the powers that be for their security rather than to God Himself. Thank goodness we're not a people that look to man for our security. Actually, wait a minute. There's a... There's an election coming up. How many in the church have looked to government, politics, parties, instead of the very God who created them? God pleads with Judah and in His pleading He extends to them a hope. Look with me, turn the page over to uh, chapter 1 verse 16. Maybe it's on the same page for you. I have to turn. Verse 16 says, Wash yourselves. I think sometimes in the church, we need to take a look at our hearts and recognize that there is a cleansing that needs to occur. We need to look at our minds and what we put into it on a regular basis. Consider our ears and what we listen to and understand that there is a cleansing that needs to occur. It says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. In layman's terms, stop it. Don't do it. It's not complex. Then, verse 17. Do this. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Those are good things. Goes on to say, come now and let us reason together. God engages you and I to think about this. Let's reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And we sit here all these years later thinking, well, that was... That's pretty tough for Judah there. Man. Glad God's different today. Well, what do you do with the passages of Scripture that says that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever? God has not ceased to be a God that deals with sin, yet we tell ourselves over and over that we can get away with it. And God calls them to himself. God is a God who has been giving them promises from the very beginning. Think about in Genesis 12 where he says, Through the seed of Abraham, all nations, all people groups will be blessed. And Isaiah is going to deal with that. In 2 Samuel, we see that the Messiah, the promised one, the one they've been looking for all these years, is going to be addressed in Isaiah as he speaks of the Messiah, the one coming from the line of David, coming from the tribe of Judah. There's a message of hope here. Exodus 19 said of Israel, If you will obey me, you will be a kingdom of priests. The nation was to be that, that in-between, that mediator between the world and God, showing the world this amazing God that they served. And church, we have even a greater responsibility to do that today. A greater opportunity to point people to the Lord we serve. But there was a problem. Idolatry had gripped the hearts of the people, plagued with their, their inward focus. Me. Me, me. They neglected their relationship with the Lord. They knew of God. It was ritual at best. Show up, do this, look this way, talk this way, we're good. We so see early on in Isaiah. That God is dealing with his people, but not just his people. As you read this book, you see that God has a heart for all people, all nations. To think that the Old Testament is a God that only looked to Israel and no one else. You read Isaiah and you cannot come away with that conclusion. God is aware, He cares, and He sees, and He desires all people to come to Him. Isaiah received a call in in chapter 6. It's a powerful call. Nathan last week read from from chapter 6. We see beginning in verse 3, it says, And one called out to another, these were the, the cherubim, and it says, Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. As Isaiah is going to begin his ministry, he sees and understands that God is holy. Look at what it says The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds tremble at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Notice this, as Isaiah sees this, this is his response. He sees and hears and understands that there is a holy God before him and his response is this, woe is me. Woe is me. For I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He sees God as holy. His very first response is not to look around and go, Oh God, you're so holy. Have you seen so-and-so? Oh my goodness, I was out and this week so-and-so did such-and-such and and -and such-and-such. No, his very first response when looking upon a holy God is, Woe is me. When we look upon God's holiness, it reveals our sin. It reveals the disgustingness and evil of what sin truly is. And if it does not convict you first, then you are not looking at a holy God. Because a holy God will convict you first. Then he has a grief for the sin around him. Do you grieve when you look around and see the immorality, when you listen to it, when you you watch it? Or does it entertain you? Does it make you laugh? Or are you just numb? In light of seeing a holy God, in light of seeing what's what sin looks like in, in reference to a holy God. God calls Isaiah. Look at look at verse eight. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. Send me. Isaiah has been called the Paul of the Old Testament. The evangelist. When you read the book of Isaiah, you see his heartbeat for the Lord. You see his heart that people recognize their sin and in, in recognizing that they turn to God. That is his heartbeat as he gives this message. He talks about the consequence of sin, but he also deals with the salvation. I love that Isaiah's name means Salvation is from the Lord. Yahweh is salvation. I love that we see that. As we we look at at the overview of this book, we we see that there's, there's two distinct parts. And this intrigued me quite greatly initially in my initial studies. It's fascinating as you look at this, because as you look at the first part of the book, you see that there's 39 chapters. You're like, great. In the second half, there's 27. And people have said, this is like a miniature Bible. I'm like, huh. Well, first of all, chapters and verses, by the way, folks, are not inspired. But we can still see things in them, right? Okay, So don't take too much into that. But it's fascinating, as we deal with the 39 chapters in the beginning part of the book, we see a great emphasis on on the judgment that is coming. We we see that throughout the, the book, there's an emphasis on what is old and what is new. The old Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. I love that when we come to the New Testament, we see that God takes something that is old and he makes new. Remember when we looked at Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun? There is, and that is when God does the creative work of making you and I a new creation. And we see that new. It's beautiful. But the old Jerusalem we see is going to be consumed, burned up with fire. We see that there is a new Jerusalem that will come in the future and and we see that Assyria is is taking over Israel. He's they're taking them into captivity. In the midst of that Judah cries out. The southern kingdom cries out to God. God help us. I love that even in our sin when we cry out to God, God hears, he listens. And God does a miraculous work of protecting them. It's quite entertaining, actually, to read how God does things. He doesn't do it as man does. That's so he gets the credit. You would think that Judah, after seeing that, would go, oh, praise God, and they would follow. But very quickly we see them fall into their old patterns where they look to man. They look to those who are powerful around them. They begin to build alliances with those of the world. Looking for them for their safety, their comfort, their protection rather than looking to God. And in the end that will bring their doom. Yet throughout the book, we see the emphasis that Yahweh is salvation. The Lord is salvation. There's salvation in no one else. Not in what you do, not in who you know, not in how much you make, not with who you make alliances with. There's salvation and salvation only in God alone. I love that we see this. And we see that God is dealing with sin, Here's the thing, church. We need to recognize that God deals with sin. The first part is that message to the current generation that heard Isaiah preach. They heard and read his words, but they missed it. And God is bringing condemnation on their sin. He will lead them away into captivity. And the Babylonians will take the southern kingdom, into captivity for 70 years. God deals with sin. You know what's interesting as we look at this? We see that God also not only is speaking to Judah, not only Israel, God has some words to say to Assyria. Though they are God's tool at that time, God will deal with Assyria. God will deal with Babylon. God will deal with Egypt and so on and so forth. The nations around them, God is going to deal with. You know why? Because God deals with sin. You starting to get the picture? But God cares for all people. All people. I want you to think of that person that you don't like. It probably came into your mind pretty quick, didn't it, they? God cares for that individual. God loves them. The current generation hears the message of Isaiah. I'm sure the things to come intrigue them some, but well, that'll never happen. (laughs) Isaiah, you're so silly. Over and over in those 39 chapters, we see God declaring man's great need for salvation. Over and over and over. And then, It points their need, what's coming, it points to the hope that they have, the hope that they need. You and I need hope. You and I need the Lord. That song, Lord, I need you. It should be our song, day in, day out. And and we see that there is a consolation, there is something coming that's going to give hope. These last 27 chapters are are written not for that current generation, but for the future generations. Future generations will read these words and see. It's not just a message for Judah now. The second part is for all nations. And we see God working with all people. Where we saw the great need in the beginning of the book, we see that God gives a great provision. In the second part of the book. He sends one. Described as a servant and a king. Isn't that something? When you hear that description. It should make us jump to our our thinking of, of our study of Philippians. Where we see the holy son of God come and humble himself as a servant. And where God elevates him as a servant to king once again. But we see him depicted as servant king. As we see this depicted throughout, we're, we're pointing to two different places. We see that there is a Messiah, a promised seed, all the way back to Abraham, all the way back to Genesis in the garden. But a promised seed that would come, one who would be a savior, one, as we read earlier during our worship, that would be the suffering servant. What a picture of one that would come to suffer. But mixed in all of that is one who would be conqueror. And oh, they wanted a conqueror because of those around them, those oppressing them. Generation after generation after generation would want one to come and conquer They see one that would come as king, would rule on the throne of David. The greatest king that Israel had ever seen. And not only that, there would be one that would establish a new Jerusalem. The kingdom of God. Remember, the second part is written for future generations. And we look, and at the center there is the exile. God took them into captivity just as He had said. Isaiah had prophesied in great detail about the captivity of Babylon. Great detail all the way up to that Cyrus Remember learning about Cyrus just a few weeks ago? Cyrus would be the one that would allow them to go back and rebuild. And people are like, well, you know, that's probably written by someone afterwards, not Isaiah. Yeah, because, my goodness, we don't serve a God that knows the future, do we? I mean, if we have to say that someone else wrote that Cyrus would be the one to bring them back, then we have to explain... Isaiah 52 and 53, where it describes the Messiah, the suffering servant. Then we have to question all those words, don't we? But because it was true, we know that what is said here is true. We, ha- we serve a great God. I I want to show you something here, when we consider prophecy, we we have to understand that when it was written, this was the view, a very one-dimensional picture, and they would have the words of the prophet there, and they'd see the suffering servant, they'd see the king, and they would see them together, it was hard to determine the timeline of things, As God would reveal His Word, we would get a a greater three-dimensional picture of things. We see that the words of the prophet were predicting, declaring the things to come. But then we see here that there is the suffering servant that would come, Jesus Christ. We see that there would be the church that would be established, the bride of Christ. And we see that Jesus Himself is going to be coming back for His bride. And one day, Jesus Christ himself will sit on the throne of David and rule on this earth. As you go through Isaiah's chapter 7, we see that he would be born of a virgin. In chapter 9, we see that the government would be on his shoulders. We see the names given to Jesus Christ. In chapter 11, we see that he would be from the line of Jesse, that he would rule on earth. Chapter 32, his righteous rule shared and demonstrated how he would rule righteously. In chapter 40, we see the the ministry of John the Baptist. In 42, we see that Gentiles would be a part of this plan that God had. In 49, we see that Jesus himself would be worshipped by rulers of the world. That every knee would bow before him. In chapter 50, we read that his beard would be plucked, that he would be spit upon, mocked. In chapter 52 and 53, we see detailed description given of his crucifixion, death, burial, and his exaltation. In chapter 60, we see... That he shines among men and he rules victoriously. In chapter 61 we see the work of the Messiah. His healing, his preaching, his, his miracles, the message of the gospel. It's been said that in the Old Testament there are well over 300 prophecies about the very first advent of Jesus Christ. The book of Isaiah contributes a great deal of these prophecies. The odds that even 10 of them could be fulfilled in one person is a statistical marvel. The math equation is just astounding. Yet there are over 300 and Jesus Christ fulfills them all. And if it was right the first time, then his second advent will happen as he said. So what? We come this morning, we look at a book, Isaiah, written thousands of years ago, right? To a people that, well, are long gone. So what? You have Monday coming tomorrow. What does this matter? Are are you smarter now concerning history past? Are you wiser considering the things that that will come or fascinated at best as you read this book? Is it intriguing? Maybe you you leave here this morning with a deeper understanding and knowledge of, of just how God is going to work Well, we could leave feeling smarter, maybe a little more confident, right? Whoop-de-do! We don't. We don't gather together. We don't look to God's word just to feel smarter. I, I struggled honestly with how to conclude this book. Isaiah is a long book, and. And honestly, I I was struggling still up to yesterday, and and yesterday I, I finished reading the last chapter. I read the last chapter of Isaiah, and I got it. I'd encourage you not just to read the last chapter, by the way, but the whole book. It's well worth it. But in the last chapter we see that God himself is being worshipped by all people, from all nations. We see a powerful God who is ruling righteously. And honestly that thrills my my heart. That's exciting to see. And as I read that, I'm like, this is good. This is what's coming. And I look forward to it. Because I look around and I don't see a righteous rule. I see things getting worse and worse and worse. And I look forward to the day that Jesus Christ sits on his throne and rules. But there was a contrast. And it's quite fascinating that Isaiah closes with this the suffering and torment of those souls that reject him look at 66 23 and 24 all mankind will come to bow down before me says the Lord then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men Who had transgressed against me. Their worm will not die, their fire will not be quenched, and they will be an adhorrence to all mankind. The end. That's how it ends. It's a powerful conclusion to, to a book that declares Yahweh is salvation. He and he alone. But Isaiah, as he finishes this book, points us to a holy God and to those who rebel and reject Him. Why? Because God desires a relationship. He desires you and I. I I read the final chapter and it humbled me. It humbled me to think that God knowing my sin would want a relationship. It humbled me that He would step down, stoop, and provide a way of salvation. And it grieved me as I read that last chapter. It grieved me as I thought of those around me who do not know this amazing God we serve. And it grieved me even more the lack of genuine care that I have for those people. Pastor, we all have those, don't we? People that we remain comfortable with so that we don't offend them. We love them hoping one day they will ask, why do you love me? And we'll go, oh, because of Jesus. But we failed to tell them the truth. We failed to tell them that sin is real and it's real bad. And God hates sin, but God provided a way. And like Isaiah, we need to point people to a holy God. We need to say, people, friends, neighbors, co-workers, there is a holy God and He judges sin, but He has provided away the grace and mercy that He gives you and I. I could think of no better way to end this message than with the words of Isaiah from chapter 53. He says, But he, being Jesus, was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our transgressions. Iniquities. The chastening for our well being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. All, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. What a God. What grace. What mercy. Let's pray. God, I am convicted. Even as I stand here and read those words. God, that you would take such a judgment upon yourself that I deserved. God, thank you for your grace.